Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week I have a very special guest joining me in the studio, my good friend, columnist and author Paul Sullivan. Paul writes the weekly Wealth Matters column for the New York Times and the Money Game column for Golf Magazine. He is also the author of The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy, and Clutch, Why Some People Excel Under Pressure and Others Don't. Paul and I have known each other for more than 20 years. We first met at the Financial Times back in 2000. His first big story for the FT was a profile of the author Kurt Vonnegut based on a train ride they took from Springfield, Massachusetts to New York City. His last piece for the FT was Vonnegut's obituary. As you'll hear, Paul is a passionate golfer and raconteur. We talk about what he learned about managing money after writing 575 columns, why we all have money scripts, and why it's important to know what that script is and his experiences interviewing the likes of Tiger Woods, Greg Norman, and Richard Thaler. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to Paul. Paul Sullivan, welcome to the show. Lauren Foster, thanks for having me on. Well, as the listeners heard in the setup, we go way back since our days back in the financial times. So I thought a fun place for us to start would be where our paths diverge. So I stayed at the FT, you went on to the New York Times, it was back in 2008. You launched a column, Wealth Matters, uh, that was pretty much when Lehman had collapsed, Bernie Madoff just got arrested. What was it like to launch a Wealth Matters column in the financial crisis and what were you trying to do with your column? Look, Lauren, we've known each other 21 years. You know I've always had impeccable timing. So uh, I tell the story that I interviewed at the New York Times the day Bear Stearns collapsed. I was told I would get to write the column the day Lehman Brothers collapsed. And my first column ran uh, right around when Bernie Madoff was escorted out of his Park Avenue uh, apartment. So again, perfect timing, uh, really great way to start a wealth column. But it changed a lot. You know, we we're coming out of the idea was conceived coming out of 2007, where everything was still, you know, quite frothy. And, you know, when you and I were at the FT together, I had created a, a similar wealth column there. But that was, it, that was a you know, very different time, uh, very different paper. And so we pivoted pretty quickly uh, with my wealth matters column at the Times. And, you know, from the beginning, the one thing I wanted to do was to see if I could take, you know, the actions and the decisions made by some of the wealthiest people in America and apply them to people with far less resources. These were, you know, the, the sort of middle class and upper middle class readers of the New York Times. And whenever I could do that, I, I considered the column successful. So I guess more than a decade has passed since that first column. And I think it was a 2019 that you reached your 500th column. Is that right? Yeah, I, I started it with a lot more hair. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, as of our discussion today, I just wrote the 575th column. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, for that 500th column, you know, one of the things I did was I essentially went back and, and skimmed the 499 columns before. And I'll say, like, the thing that I was proudest of is I, as I kept going with that idea of taking these lessons from the super rich and applying them to, you know, people of more modest means 
And I also didn't repeat myself too much. So I was proud of that. That's a good thing. So a lot of financial advisors listen to the podcast. Um, what were some of the, the main lessons that you gleaned over 500 columns of talking to lots of different people, lots of different advisors? I guess, you know, when I, when I broke them down, I was, maybe I surprised, maybe I wasn't, but roughly, you know, a 20% to, you know, a quarter of the columns had something to do with taxes. And these weren't all just, you know, taxes for the wealthiest, though I, I did write an awful lot about estate and gift taxes. It was, you know, how everybody should think through their, their tax planning. And those are always the columns, you know, they're often the, the most difficult columns to write. Because if you make one mistake on a tax column, you're guaranteed to get 100 emails uh, pointing that mistake out. Um, but they're also the ones that often had uh, the best response from people at all different levels because people were, were curious. They wanted to know, you know, how do they go about doing their own tax planning? And I guess by the second one, uh, if you think of like a, a broad group, the second one was really anything to do with how we think about money, whether it be, you know, how we decide whether to, to splurge on something or, you know, more practically, how do we talk to our, our children uh, about money? You know, not you know, in some cases, it's money they might one day inherit. In other cases, it was, you know, how do they make good financial decisions with whatever money, you know, they earn? Those are probably the two broad categories that, that stuck out the most. So actually, in a few minutes, I want to go more into the sort of talking to kids about money. But before I do, I'd love to know, like, do you have a favorite column that you wrote? Uh, there are some that stuck out as like, you know, completely bonkers out there. And one of those was this whole group of people who created um, their own bespoke perfume. So they sort of work with perfumers to create a scent that only they would have. And as you might imagine, this is a wildly expensive thing uh, to do. And I don't remember the quote exactly, but it was one of the times where you know, the Times used to have sort of the, you know, the quote of the day and, and it'd be pulled out in the front of the paper. And this one woman wanted her, her perfume to smell like her horse. And I forget what the, the perfumer had, this amazing quote, and I can't remember it, I should have looked it up, but th that always stuck out as, as something that was out there. But, you know, in terms of a favorite column, there's probably one early on, um, you know, it's been 12 years now, so people don't remember it as well as they did, you know, when I first wrote it, but for good, Five or six years, people would always bring up this column about a dispute over a brick wall in Westport, Connecticut, you know, the Westport Wall. And it was two people who weren't going to budge, pun intended, uh, over the wall. And, and let's, let's say the wall, it was expensive. Let's say the wall cost $200,000 to build. By the time I talked to them, they'd spent, you know, $400,000, $500,000 litigating each other. Because one guy wanted the wall to come down. It wasn't his wall, obviously. And then the guy who had the wall said, I'm not taking my wall down. And they went back and forth. And what that was, it showed like how out of control anybody can get when emotion and money mix. And I got so many letters from people who hadn't spent the magnitude of money, but they had had squabbles at their you know, HOA association over something. And, and to a person, they all regretted it. They all regretted the, the time, the emotional energy, and the money they spent you know, arguing over something that probably could have been settled uh, in a more less, you know, time, you know, in, in a more efficient way. So with emotions, I guess one topic um, is kids and money. 
And I saw you wrote a column back in 2019 about this topic. You've probably written lots of columns about it, but you sort of quipped in there that people will talk to their kids about you know, drugs and drinking and driving. And yet when it comes to talking to kids about money, there's this aversion. Um, why is that the case, do you think? And, and why is it so important? Uh, and when you talk to advisors about talking to you know, their clients or counseling their clients about talking about money, what do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, to answer the first part of that question, it's the aversion is always because parents are afraid that if their kids know how much money they have or, or may one day inherit, it's going to rob them of any incentive to do well in life. This is sort of patently false because parents somehow think that they exist in this bubble where they're the only source of information for their children about the family's wealth. I mean, if you're stupendously wealthy, you can look it up. Um, if you live in a, you know, 10,000 square foot house and all your friends live in a 2,000 square foot house, you've figured it out that, you know, your parents have some money. You know, there's this nifty little tool called Zillow, which will tell you exactly how much your parents' house costs. We can all figure out how much a, a, a car costs. And so in, in trying to sort of, you know, shield their children from that information, they're just allowing them to go and figure it out on their own. In the same way that no parent wants to you know, not talk about drugs because they fear that their kid will go figure it out on their own. They don't want to talk about sex because they, you know, they're always going to talk about sex because they don't want them to you know, figure it out from, from their friends. And you know, when it comes to advisors, it's tough because advisors, I think, a lot that I've talked to, they know that this is a problem, but they tread lightly because it's the client's money and the client you know, doesn't have to heed their advice. But, but imagine for a moment, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you have type 2 diabetes, or the doctor said, you have uh, cancer. You couldn't see it. You can't see it from the outside, just as you know, you can try to hide stuff around your wealth, but you wouldn't say, I have type 2 diabetes. I look fine. You know, uh, you know, I shaved today. Nothing happened. You, know, I look the same. You, you would take action. You would, you would be scared, and you'd do whatever you need to do. It's the same thing with people who think that they can you know, downplay the vestiges of their wealth and then never talk. Uh, to their children about it. I mean, one of the worst examples I ever wrote about was a fella who after, I think it was after 2008, probably, he told his kids that he'd lost all the money. It was all gone. They'd never get anything. And he still had tens of millions of dollars. And what that's going to do is create resentment because your children are going to make different choices in their life um, that they wouldn't have, you know, uh, otherwise. And, and, and you see it play out time and time again, like hiding it, the amount of money you have from your children the children are never happy with it in the end, and it never creates, you know, family harmony. Like everything in life, it's better to be be upfront and honest about it. So, in your reporting, did you find some strategies that are particularly effective for helping people talk about money? Yeah, I mean, one of the best is it's a, a classic sort of, you know, group scenario where where the advisor, you know, works with, you know, the patriarch, the matriarch, the husband and wife, the spouse, whatever it is and get them to talk openly about what their fears are. Because it's not money. It's not like money is just a means of exchange. If you have more money, you can buy more things. If you have less money, you can't buy as many things. That's all it is. I mean, you can only, I've written about it in one of my books, you can only do four things with money. You can save it, you can spend it, you can give it away, and you can think about it. And, and that's it. You can't do anything else with money. And so the, the savviest advisors will get their clients to say, what is your real fear? Your real fear isn't that, you're going to give your child fill in the blank 
$500,000, $5 million, $50 million, whatever. Your real fear is something else. And then on the, on the flip side, that savvy advisor is going to be able to get permission to convene those, the clients, to convene their children and, and get the children to say, what do you think mom and dad have? What do you think you know, they want to do? What do you want? Because you, know, you and I, as, as trained reporters, you, you learn an awful lot by asking people questions and listening to their answers. It's that simple. And you often make mistakes when you try to imagine what somebody else is thinking or feeling. It's, it's much better to say, you know, what do you want out of this? And, you know, for a while, there's a fellow, Joe Duran, um, who I've interviewed many times over the years. He had a firm called United Capital, which uh, about a year ago was bought by, by Goldman Sachs. But he came up with this idea early on called Honest Conversations. And it was essentially uh, a card game where the husband and wife, uh, the couple, whatever it was, they would sit down. And they would answer these questions. And then it was like, you know, a game of poker. You, you have your five cards and then you reveal. And what you would do is you would see where you matched up. You'd see, okay, we have two cards in common, three cards in common. And then you talk about whatever number of cards weren't in common as your way to sort of get to the discussion. You know, little tricks like that go a long way of, of getting people to relax and, and open up. So I was doing some research ahead of the podcast and I came across some of your work on money scripts. And actually I hadn't heard that term before and it seems like it's a really critical um, area for us all to think about. And I think it was one of your columns you wrote about, you said they help us understand the hardwired, deep-seated beliefs we have about money. So what exactly are money scripts and how do advisors or how should advisors be using them? Yeah, money scripts is something that came up uh, in research by my second favorite bald person, uh, Dr. Brad Klontz. And Dr. Brad Klontz is um, a financial psychologist. And he was in Hawaii for a while, he lives in Boulder. He teaches at Creighton University. And this is research that he came up with. And he and I worked together uh, on, on some academic research. He's also in one of my books. But the money scripts, it is just that. It's the hard wiring. It's, you know, what, what did we learn when we were young about what it means you know, to have money. You know, for some people, uh, your net worth is your self-worth. I mean, that's a hardwired, you know, money script. For, for other people, they have a, a sense of aversion or they believe that, you know, only people only get money by doing nefarious things. You know, money only goes to people who've lied and cheated. You know, other people feel entitled about money. I mean, one of the great uh, examples that Brad, uh, that Brad Klons came up with is if you take, you know, the same scenario and play it out with three different outcomes, how that will ingrain and change somebody's money script. So, for example, uh, a family of four, uh, you know, two parents, two kids, they're living in a house and they're about to lose the house. Okay, that's the same for all three scenarios. In scenario one, uh, they lose the house. Uh, in scenario two, the grandparents come in and bail them out. And in scenario three, the parents work really hard and find a way to save the house on their own, okay? Same initial uh, scenario, three very different outcomes. And even the two outcomes in which they hold on to the house are wildly different. In one, you know, sort of force majeure, something comes in and, and saves you. In another, you know, kind of top down, another sort of bottom up, you've figured out a way to, to work. Nobody forgets that. I mean, this is, you know, kids don't forget that, parents don't forget that, and that becomes you know, part of the, the sort of family history. And, and those money scripts, to really understand them, are crucial to understand why somebody 
you know, makes the same bad decisions again and again. Or, you know, on the flip side, why somebody saves way more money than she's ever going to need uh, in, in her lifetime. So you've written about everything from manuscripts to neighbors feuding over walls to horse smelling perfumes, <laughs> uh, 575 columns. I mean, don't you or do you run out of ideas? I mean, I don't know how you keep finding ideas. How do you what's your, what's your process for, for writing your columns? Great. Thank you. You've you just jinxed me. That's it. I'm not going to like 576. I'm going to be staring at my screen later today. Um, <laughs> has, has changed a lot, particularly, you know, during the, the pandemic, but there's no magic formula. I mean, I was super disciplined, you know, maniacally disciplined, as you know, and, you know, the column is due on Wednesday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is reporting and writing. And then in, you know, before in, uh, up until 2020, you know, every Thursday and Friday, I would I would just meet people. I would I would you know talk to them on the phone if they didn't live around here. It, I'd go into the city, uh, and I'd have you know four or five meetings in a day. I'd meet somebody for breakfast. I'd, I'd meet somebody for lunch. I'd have a cup of coffee. I'd meet somebody you know for a drink before I I went home. And it was that kind of just shoe leather you know nature of it. That was a good part of it. You know another part of it was obviously you know there are. You know, public relations people, and then they'll come to you and they'll say, you know, I have an idea for a client. And look, they're, they've been very helpful over the years. It doesn't always work out. You know, unfortunately, some of them pitch you after the story is run, um, or you know, some of them pitch you with a sort of urgency that I, I may not share. But I have all these files, and like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, X Y Z from one two three firm. They were doing something like this. Let me reach out. Uh, and, and see if they're they're still doing this. That could be, you know, that one person could could be the nugget for a broader column in which I'll talk to a dozen people. And then, you know, also, I, I don't want to play this down. I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of emails, you know, from, from readers uh, who, and you know, it's the classic, you know, uh, this isn't me who does this, but I have a friend who's done something similar to this. Um, and I got one the other day, which was remarkable. Uh, it was somebody essentially saying, you know, one of my best friends, I believe, uh, has swindled uh, the government. And I was like, okay. I was like, please tell me. And, and I haven't heard back from that person ever since. But that sort of, you know, took the cake of somebody willing to tell me something um, that was pretty remarkable. Oftentimes, it's more, you know, uh, you know, but my, my, my grandma is having a problem with this. We set up this sort of plan and X, Y, Z happened. Have you ever heard of it before? And, and you know. Sometimes I have, sometimes I haven't, but it often serves as that, you know, you need that kernel, that initial kernel to sort of start the, the column popping along. So people love hearing about like flops and mistakes. I suppose there's a bit of schadenfreude and thinking, well, you know, <laughs> they made those mistakes. I won't make them. But are there any sort of mistakes you've heard about or you've written about that are obvious mistakes that people should be avoiding? I guess more in the sort of behavioral finance realm uh, of thinking. Oh, man. I thought you were going to ask me my own mistakes. I was happy to tell you about that, too. Um, but, um, I mean, one of the, the common mistakes, I mean, people, unfortunately, things repeat. I mean, in behavioral finance, it's that anchoring bias. I mean, that's the bias that's probably, you know, the, the strongest. This thing worked before, uh, so it'll probably work again. You know, why? Or the flip side, this thing didn't work the last time. Uh, it probably won't work again, you know. You know or, or the craziest one is, uh, this thing failed. Uh, you know, I'm going to keep doing the same exact thing, and it's going to keep failing. I mean, that's sort of the definition of insanity. But it's all of those things that once you present it to somebody, you know, once you get people 
to not think of the sort of 1980s, 1990s version of personal finance, which is what was my stock and bond portfolio doing? Once you get people away from that and get them thinking you know, more conceptually, I mean, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize for many different things, but, but one of the simplest uh, yet most important things he did was create the idea of mental accounting, that, that we have these sort of buckets in our head where everything goes. And once you can get somebody you know, thinking in that capacity, that they have enough in their bucket for you know, the next six months, they have enough in their bucket for you know, two years after that. And, and once they start thinking like that, they start to make much better decisions because they're not as, as reactive. They're not, you know, you know, because I guess I, I have to end it when I say they're not as reactive. I mean, that, of course, brings up, you know, loss aversion. Everybody is quite happy now uh, that, you know, stock market indices are, are charting in, in record territory, at least, you know, as we're talking now, I've probably jinxed it. It's probably going to go straight down. But if it were to go down, you know, X number of points, certain people panic. And, it, and it, it's getting more and more absurd because the Dow is so high, at least at the moment of, of us talking. When you hear on the news, like, the Dow fell 593 points today, you're like, well, who cares? It's over 30,000. It, it doesn't matter. But people hear that number, and that's the loss aversion kicking in. So again, once you can get people thinking more conceptually in those buckets, they, 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 they realize that that 593 points is, is just a blip and insignificant. So you mentioned Richard Thaler. He was actually one of our speakers at our annual conference a few, few years ago. If I'm not mistaken, you actually have met Richard Thaler. Is that right? And was that for your book, The Thin Green Line? Yeah, uh, I did. Um, and, and, you know, and I joke about it, like talk about you know, my own ingrained behavioral biases. You know, I met him uh, in his house in, in San Diego in a really nice neighborhood of San Diego. But when I was driving up there, all the houses on one side were pretty modest. And I was like, huh. This guy's, you know, pretty famous guy, you know, done pretty well. And all the houses on the other side were beautiful. And I was like, oh, where does he live? And I pull up and he was on, you know, the side of the street where all the houses were beautiful. And so I was like, I wonder why he wants to live in this neighborhood with all these crummy houses. And he opens his door and there was a clear shot at the Pacific Ocean. You're like, oh, this is why all these houses are so beautiful. Um, but he was great. And I talked to him many times over the years. I haven't talked to him recently. Um, but he was a savvy guy. And, you know, talk about somebody who knew how to do his own, you know, mental accounting. He's a real, as he said, he calls himself a wino. I mean, he loves wine, he collects wine, he shares wine. And I sat down and as you know, you know, I'm one of the great, you know, freeloaders of all time when it comes to, to great wine. And he sits down and he offers me a glass, one glass. And that was it. And I finished it. And I was, you know, kind of like, looking at it like is there any more here and th that was it w one and done uh you know we did my interview and, and he sent me on his way so. so tell the audience i mean what is the thin green line and what were you trying to do with that book the thin green line is the difference between being you know wealthy and rich which a lot of people hear that and think that's semantics or those are synonyms but if you know the cfa audience will get it instantly if you think of a you know chart the s p since the 1980s it goes up. It's a lot higher today than it was in the 1980s, but it's not a straight line. You know, it's jagged. There dips. If you paint that line green and put that in your mind, that's what I want people to have as an image. And there are people on, you know, the top of that line who I consider wealthy. You know, now it's not just you know the the John the the CEOs, John Huntsman seniors of, of the world who I talked to in that book. It's also you know lower down on that line. It's 
you know, teachers, nurses, you know, small town attorneys who don't have the earning capacity of, of some CEOs or some entrepreneurs, but have made crucial decisions so that they can, you know, own their own time. They can, you know, life is not going to make decisions for them. They're going to make their own decisions. I consider them wealthy. On the other side of that line are, are, are people who are rich and poor. You know, obviously, if you're, you're on the lower, on the bottom of that line at the very start, you're just, you're, you're trying to get by. You're trying to make money. You're not worried about saving. You're worried about just paying your bills. But as you go up that line, there are people making, you know, tens of millions of dollars who I consider rich. Why are they rich? They're overly leveraged. They're making foolish decisions. They're trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're, you know, spending money today that they're not going to earn until tomorrow. Um, at any point, that can fail. And suddenly, they're not going to be making decisions anymore. Decisions are going to be made for them. And that, to me, is really, you know, who gets to make the decisions? That's the difference between being, being wealthy and rich. So The Thin Green Line was your second book, actually. Your first book was Clutch. Uh, now, I have this memory. I'm not sure if I have it quite correct, but November 27th, uh, 2009, that was the day that Tiger Woods crashed his car. And if I'm remembering correctly, you had just submitted your, your manuscript to the publisher or you were about to submit your, your manuscript. And Tiger Woods at that time featured quite prominently in the book. Just refresh my memory and tell the audience what happened there. Yeah, well, what happened with Tiger, he crashed his car um, and, and we all know you know, sort of what happened afterwards. It was revealed that he was having an, multiple affairs on his wife. His wife, uh, understandably, uh, was not very happy with him and, and his whole life changed. But I had interviewed Tiger uh, uh, more than a year before um, after he'd won his last U.S. Open uh, at Torrey Pines. And it's his one of his most famous victories. His, his knee is shot. He's hobbling around. And, and somehow he wins. And, and I thought, like, the key interview for me to write a book called Clutch, which is all about people who do well under pressure, people in business, people in, in law, uh, actors who are giving soliloquies, and, of course, you know, sports figures, was to talk to Tiger, who's the most you know, clutch athlete of his generation. And, and I met him. I flew down to South Carolina. We talked. Um, and he gave me a couple things here and there. It wasn't the best interview I've ever had, but I got enough to you know, be able to have you know, Tiger in the book. And then you're right. I, I, you know, I submit the book, uh, and I can't believe it. Like I'm, I remember it to this day. I'm putting up the Christmas tree uh, in my house, you know, right after Thanksgiving, and this will date, you know, put it back in time. I have a BlackBerry, a thing called a BlackBerry, you know, and I can see what's going on here. Um, goodness, you know, what's happened? You know, is he dead? Did this happen? I, and, and in the intervening weeks, I realized that although what happened to him was horrible, a tragedy, it, it kind of it helped me prove the broader point of the book because as we watched what happened to Tiger after that. He was a disaster under pressure. He had people who had shielded him his whole life. He had people who gave him bad advice and continued to give bad advice. He didn't accept responsibility uh, for what he did. He gave this, this, this press conference with his mom in the office that was you know, cringeworthy. But it proves the broader point that being great under pressure isn't something that's innate. It's not something everybody can do. You have to work at it. And Tiger was amazing under pressure when it, he was on the golf course. But when it came to the rest of his life, he was probably worse than, than you and me. I mean, he just made, he, he made a bad decision and then he just compounded it again and again and again and under the pressure of being in the spotlight, 
it just deteriorated. And it showed that, again, you know, being clutch is something you have to, to learn. And it's not something that instantly translates across every aspect of, of your life. So for as long as I've known you, you have been crazy about golf. Um, I mean, I can remember back at the FT, if I needed a golf analogy, I had to go to you to find out like what I say about golf. And now I believe you're writing a monthly column for Golf Magazine. Right. But also, like if the readers can see here, this is my home office. You know, there's a putting green there. If they, there's a couple flags hanging up behind me, there's golf clubs in the back. Uh you know, it, it is what you say, Lauren, is completely true. And there's the proof behind me to prove it. Um, but yes, I am. Uh, I am writing uh, a monthly column for golf called Money Game, sort of the intersection of money and golf. And, and it came about uh, in the most serendipitous way. Uh, you know, for the 12 years I've been with The Times, the 12 years I've been writing the Wealth Matters column, I begged and begged and begged and begged to you know, let them let me write about golf. And the running joke is I've, I've achieved my, my lifelong dream at the time, and I'm the seventh string golf writer for the New York Times. Like after they go through six other people, they'll, they'll come to me. And in 2019, I was out at Pebble Beach. The U.S. Open was there, and it was the USGA uh, media day. And I'm, you know, I get to play with one of the guys from the USGA. A couple of the guys are following us around. You know, the guy I'm profiling is with me. And they have this other fella uh, join us. And... I say, you know, sure, you know, come on board. And he's trying to break 90 uh, from the back tees at, at Pebble Beach. So for, for anybody who doesn't know golf, he's just trying to shoot a pretty mediocre score, but at a U.S. Open course. And and poor guy, he's struggling because, you know, he didn't read clutch and the pressure's getting to him. Um, but he's being filmed while he's doing this and all his buddies are chasing him around. And I noticed on the third hole, that this pregnant woman is is following him. And so I go up and I introduce myself to him and I say, look, you know, uh, I've got three kids. It's your first, yes. Um, I notice that these guys, these, these kind of jokers, keep taking your golf cart. Um, do you want me to say something to them? And she says, oh, no, uh, don't worry. Uh, I, I like to walk. And I said, okay. And, and, you know, all of these people work for me. So if I want the golf cart, they'll give it back to me. And I say, oh, what do you do? And she was, she is the editorial director of Golf Magazine. And so the conversation started on the third hole at Pebble Beach. And by the 14th hole, she said, you know, I, I know your column at the Times. Would you ever want to write a golf column for us? And I said, you, sign me up. Sign me up. I don't even know what it is. And, and so it's been a really fun 18 months of, of kind of really like getting to talk to some of my, you know, childhood heroes and getting to nerd out on golf and, you know, my wife has been so grateful because now I don't have to nerd out on golf around her. I can go to real <laughs> golf nerds. So it's been great for my marriage as well. <laughs> so who is your favorite golfing character and what's your favorite golfing story? Oh, my favorite. Well, right now I'd say my favorite golfing character uh, is Harry Higgs. And Harry is new on the PGA Tour, but he is, you know, he wears wayfarers. He perhaps had uh, one too many cheeseburgers. Uh, he leaves his, you know, shirts unbuttoned, but he's a great player. And he's, you know, I got to interview him a couple months ago and he was, you know, just the same kind of, you know, wildly talented, but, but good natured guy you, you could see on, on TV. And, you know, obviously we like to think he's an inspiration to all of us, you know, dads who perhaps packed down the pounds in, in COVID, but, but he's a wildly talented player. Uh, my favorite golf story uh, is probably probably from back at the FT. When I was at the FT, um, Greg Norman, the great Australian golfer, 
I think he just started his wine. I mean, this is, you know, 20 years ago, or, or maybe he was just promoting it, whatever it was, but he wanted to meet with somebody at the FT uh, to dis discuss his wine. And I know nothing about wine. I mean, I like wine, I drink wine, but I'm no wine expert. But I put my hand up and I said, you know, I love Greg Norman, I want to go. And we, we sit in this office and, and he's there and I am so nervous. Like this was my childhood hero. Like I would pretend to be Greg Norman in the backyard of my house. And he starts off and I won't do his accent, but he says, you know, Paul, essentially, I don't want to suck up to you, but uh, the FT is my favorite paper. Uh, I really wanted to meet with somebody from the FT. I thought you guys could really write about my wine. And this means an awful lot to me uh, to, to actually be sitting down with a reporter from the FT. And I said, Greg, let's be on uh, equal footing here. You are my, my childhood hero. I used to pretend I was Greg Norman in my backyard. So if, I, if you admit that to me, I admit that to you. Let, let's go from there. And, and Greg and I had a, had a great, great talk. And, you know, I, I remember that, I mean, again, 20 years ago, and I still can, you know, see Greg Norman sitting across from me. And it was just a real thrill. That is great. So this is where we come to the sort of the end of the show where I do the lightning round of closing questions. Oh, boy. All and right. Let me, same questions. Yes. So the same questions to all the guests. It started out with one question, then it became two questions, and now it's morphed into three. So first question, the ray of sunshine question, and that's what's one positive long-term outcome that you hope you'll see as a result of the pandemic? Uh, I, I would say simply, you know, one of the things that this is a personal uh, answer, but I hope other people have the same experience, just spending so much more time with my kids and having so much more, you know, fun. I, I've, I've got three daughters, as you know, and I really made a point of finding an activity that they like and doing it with just them alone. And, and we just go and do it once or twice a week. And, and I hope that that continues when I'm back, you know, commuting into the city because it's been a real joy. And, and I hope other people have had that, that same experience with their children. Question number two, it's called the NASA question. And that is, uh, you're about to get on a long duration space flight and you can take with you one object. I, I might be able to guess what it might be, but what is the one object you will take with you? Wait, wait, where does, where does, where does the long, a long duration space flight, what is the one object I take with me? Oh boy, that's a good question. Uh, and you think you can guess it, boy. Um, I don't know. I, I think one of my kids would give me one of their, their teddy bears. So I probably would be sitting in the long duration flight clutching, you know, probably my daughter's, you know, Nemo stuffed animal. Uh, that's what I see happening. <laughs> but, but yeah, I got to turn. What did you think I was going to say? I would have thought you were taking your, your golf, you know, putting green. <laughs> or a Kindle. Can I play golf and, and, and Mars? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you can, right? Maybe, maybe the ball will float in the air. Or... <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that brings us to our, our final question, and it's what I call the flight versus invisibility question. And whichever you pick, you'll be the only person in the world to have that superpower. Which do you pick, and what do you do with it? The ability to fly or the ability to be invisible? Yep. Oh, that, that's easy. Uh, I would 100% pick the ability to fly. Uh, and, you know, and I'm supposed to say something noble, uh, that I, I'm sure, but but I would use it to skip all the lines. I'd never wait in line again. You just imagine <laughs> me with my stuffed Nemo, uh, you know, flying off somewhere. It would be wonderful. Well, excellent. It's been so much fun chatting with you, Paul. Good luck with column number 576. Thanks, Lauren. It's great fun. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. 
Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.